So we continue this week exploring, right, trying to make an exploration of this God. And this week our question is, is there a God? Is there a God? Another way to say that question might be, how do I know that God exists? Or is there a way for me to know that God exists? If I were to try to figure that out, how would I go about figuring that out? Because a lot of people would say, well, you really can't see this God. You really can't hear this God. You really can't touch this God. There's no radar uh, device on the face of the earth that will actually help you find him. You can't use a digital kind of radar to find this God's presence. So how in the world do I know there's a God? Now, I've been faced with these questions for a long time because I was a Bible teacher at a Christian school, and I've been a camp speaker. And inevitably, when I'd be talking about God with my students or my campers, there was always people out there that already decided that God didn't exist. Some of them was a knee-jerk reaction, maybe something bad happened in their life, and they just thought, oh, you know, this God can't possibly exist. Others had really thought this through at length. And so I was faced with this task as a teacher and speaker to try to build an argument for God. Now, typically, the way that's been done in the past is, philosophically speaking, you start with a good foundation, and you build your foundational arguments about God, and you kind of get that started really well, and make sure that that your foundation's really strong, right? And you make sure that you put on some good arguments here at the bottom of the of the pyramid, make sure your foundation is really truthful and strong, right? Then, if this was true, you would build on this truth and you'd make sure that they would get the next truth and say, if this is true, then this must be true. And then, of course, if that's true, then this must be true. And I don't know how it would go until you had this beautiful tower of logic built around the existence of God. Now, Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century philosopher, He actually used this kind of methodology to build his classical arguments for the existence of God. Okay? Now let me tell you the problem with this particular method. There's a little issue with it. Because when you're a teacher and and you've done this in front of students, you have this beautiful piece of argument built, there's always some smart kid out there, I'd call him a smart aleck, who would just have a little question for me. You know, he would just want to ask a question. So he would sort of say, hey, but Rev, what about... And they would ask a question about my foundation block down here, and and I'd be kind of back and forth, back and forth, and I couldn't answer. And so I'd have to pull that one out and say, okay, that's fine, I'll I'll give that one to you. And then pretty soon, Rev, what about this one? What about that one? And they'd ask these questions, and pretty soon my blocks are getting pulled out, and my tower's beginning to crumble. You ever had this experience? Trying to argue for the existence of God, and pretty soon, oh boy, it's a total mess. Now, either I'm a really bad Bible teacher, which is possible, or you really can't prove God's existence by logical arguments, completely and entirely. True? So I was left to look for another way to think about how to build an apologetic, a reasonable argument for the existence of God. How could I justify for people that God really existed? So I instead went to this image of a trampoline. Work with me on this, okay? So the trampoline's got a frame, You see the frame, right? I thought, well, what if we could actually have a framework that we could attach reasonable arguments for God's existence to, and if we attach enough reasonable arguments for God's existence, even if you had doubts and questions, you could still have a faith, and you could get on the trampoline, and you could actually say, hey, I have a faith in God, right? And even if someone shot holes in some of my springs or straps connected to the frame, I could still reasonably say, in spite of those holes, in spite of those questions, 
I can connect enough reasonable, truthful straps to, to the frame to know that I have a faith that allows me to stand and say, yes, I believe there's a God. Okay? So this means, if this is true, doubts are a part of faith. They're not the opposite of faith. Questions are part of believing in God. You can actually have questions, wonderings, and doubts and still have a faith that allows you to say, I believe there's a God, I'm going to stake my life on him. Isn't that kind of comforting? Lee Strobel said it this way in his book, if doubt and faith can coexist, then this means people don't have to fully resolve each and every obstacle between them and God in order to have an authentic faith. In other words, when the preponderance of all the evidence tilts decisively in God's favor, and a person then makes a rational choice to put their trust in him, they can hold some of the more peripheral objections in tension until the day comes when they're resolved. In the meantime, they can still make the choice to believe and ask God to help them with their unbelief. This is good. So today, we're going to dig into this question, is there a God? And we're going to try to connect for you some straps, some springs in your trampoline of faith so you can walk out here today with some logical, reasonable justification for why you believe in God and why you're sitting here this morning putting your trust in him, going through this whole experience, singing his songs, the whole thing, right? We're going to do this from Acts chapter 17. So I'm going to take you there. Acts chapter 17, Paul is in the city of Athens, Greece. He's probably around the Parthenon. And you can see what's going on here. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. That word in Greek, distressed, means upset, angry, kind of irritated. He was looking at all these idols going, what the heck is going on with these people? They got idols for everything. They, you know, the Parthenon there, they had all these statues to these Greek gods. And he was really upset by these idols he saw. So he reasoned in the synagogue and with the, both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So Paul decides he'll explore with these people their beliefs about God. That Greek word means he proclaimed and had a dialogue with them. And he began to reason with these people, right? Reason with the synagogue people, reason with the God-fearing Greeks, reason in the marketplace, having conversations about this God or these gods that they believed in, okay? Now the story continues. Of course, in the crowd, there's people that have already made up their minds. The Epicurean Stoic philosophers. The Epicurean philosophers said there was no such thing as a spiritual realm. The only thing that was really real was this realm that we can see right here. So they already made their mind, there was no such thing as God. The Stoic philosophers said, well, there might be a God, but the world is governed by fate and luck. So if you happen to be fate, if your luck happens to be in the right direction, then life goes well. If your luck's not right, your life doesn't go so well. So these guys begin to argue with Paul in the midst of the conversation, and look what they say. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So, look what happens next. Uh, oh, this, this is just a little, little look at uh, how the climate was back in this day. Back in this day, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Does that sound like America? I mean, we got internet, we got social media. You don't even know what's true. When you're reading this stuff, I'm not even sure what to believe. 
But we love the latest ideas. We love to babble around and go all over the place. And so we're not much different than the Athenians. It's like the time we live in is actually quite similar to the time that Paul found himself in. So these philosophers, these guys that have made up their mind, decide they're going to bring Paul to the Areopagus. The Areopagus is kind of the chief court of ideas. They're going to let Paul kind of give his ideas there. So Paul goes to this meeting, and look what he says. He stands up, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Don't you love this? The people of Athens are so religious, they want to make sure not to leave any gods out. So they got a million statues to gods all over the place, but they want to make sure that they don't leave any gods out, so they put one to an unknown God. And Paul starts there, he goes, well, I'm going to tell you about this God. Now, boy, it's interesting, because I think that this is not unlike where we live today in America. Tons of people have spiritual curiosity. We live in a very spiritually curious world. People out there have questions. They wonder if there's more. They wonder if life, really, if this is all there is. They wonder about all this Christianity stuff. In fact, I did a study a couple years ago when I was at my old job. I studied the words Christianity, church, God, and Jesus, how many times they're searched on the internet and Google. In the last 12 years, Christianity and church is down and to the right. But God and Jesus is up and to the right. So while the church is becoming less and less relevant to people in the world, people's spiritual questions continue to grow. Their questions about God, about Jesus, about what to do with all this, which is why explore God is so crucial. Because all around you every day are people that are wondering, is this really real? How do I find my answers? You don't believe me? Well, it's interesting because, Tom, you know Tom Brady, right? Today is Tom Brady's going to play in his like eighth straight AFC championship game. This guy's like a, a legend. They call him the GOAT, right? He's been, he's been like probably the best, best quarterback of all times. Well, he was interviewed after his third Super Bowl on 60 Minutes a few years ago. Look what he said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's still something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, this is what it is. I've reached my dream, my goal. Me? I think, God, there's got to be more than this. The interviewer said this. So, Tom, what's the answer? What do you think it is? Brittany's response I wish I knew. Now, this guy's got a supermodel for a wife. He's won, like, how many Super Bowls? He's like Mr. All-American. He's got millions of dollars. And yet, he's looking at life going, something's not quite right about this whole thing. Thumb's not there. There must be more. Now, I need to pause here and tell you that one of the most compelling arguments for the existence of God is a person like the Apostle Paul. Notice what happened. He goes to the city of Athens... He starts discussing with these people his ideas. They're so compelled by his passion, his arguments, his thoughts. They bring him to their chief court of ideas and they say, speak to us, talk about more. If we want people to believe there's a God, one of the steps we can connect to the frame is when people watch us who say we believe in God live our lives, they're going to make conclusions about the God that we worship. True? So yesterday, I got to go down, and because of Kara Hackard's efforts, I got to go down to uh, my brother's kitchen, uh, Lambstand Ministries, and hang out with Chris Langkamp yesterday morning with uh, some other folks here at Elmer's. We went down there to serve um, food 
to folks that don't have much money, maybe you're homeless or whatever. And so from nine o'clock to one or so, we were down there doing this. And Chris Lankett was one of my former students at Timothy Christian. So it's cool to see Chris. I haven't seen Chris for years. I mean, he looks just the same and so do I. So it was awesome. So, so Chris and I, we kind of connected after we got the food going and stuff. I started talking to Chris on the side. I, see, I said, Chris, you know, how in the world did you get into this thing? Because you didn't seem to be really into this when you were in high school. I mean, I don't know. It just didn't seem like you that. He said, yeah, I was kind of a knucklehead in high school, he said. I said, no, I, I'm not saying that, Chris. He goes, no. He, he goes, I kind of was. He said, but then I had this moment in my, I remember I was distinctly in my room and I was asking God if there was more to life than kind of what I was doing. And he said, it was crazy. I, he said, I don't tell Dutch people this much because they don't do well with this, this kind of talk. But I said, you can tell me, Chris. He said, uh, he said then I heard God speak to me. He, he talked gently. He whispered. He was super gentle. And he just said, Chris, I want you to go to the west side of Chicago. I want you to, to minister to the people that have been forgotten. That was 23 years ago. He went. He's still there. Then he told me he was playing ball six months ago in the, in the parking lot with some kids, a three-year-old little girl and several kids, and they were playing ball. The next day, since their dad's in a gang, they were all shot down in cold blood. The three-year-old, her brothers and sisters, the mom, and the dad. He said he had to take a month off his job just to recover from the emotional turmoil of that moment. But he's still there. That's crazy. Why would you stay? He told me about being held up in the alleys and some of the stuff he faces every day. He's still there. You know why? Because there's a God. There's a God. The only explanation is there's a God. And he told Chris to go, and Chris went, and Chris is doing his work in a really dark place. Chris told me this is the murder capital of the world, Lawndale, West Chicago. This is it. Number one neighborhood in all of the world. Murders go on all the time. Still there. So I love that. The first trap we can connect is that there's still people, right, who are living out this amazing faith because God is doing something through their lives, and that's an amazing argument for God. Now, it'd be great if we stopped there, but we keep going because Paul keeps going. He starts to talk to these people about the God he knows. He says, I want to proclaim to you this God that I know. I'm going to talk about the God that I've experienced with you folks. He starts here. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. So Paul starts with creation, which is where most discussions about the existence of God start, right? In fact, the modern-day term is, is that God is out of existence. He's out of business because evolution is the new reality, true? It's taught all over the place. You know, why are you Christians still talking about God? It's crazy. Evolution is the way to go. Science has proved that God is completely not there. Well, I could talk to you about Albert Einstein's discovery of the theory of relativity in 1915 that actually said that there had to be a beginning to planet Earth. I could talk about cause and effect, the fact that anything that starts moving has to have something that started moving. It can't just move on its own. Anything that comes to be has to have something outside of time and space to begin that thing. But that gets kind of like heady and, I don't know, I'm not that smart. So I thought instead I would talk to you about Francis Collins. Francis Collins led the team at the Human Genome Project. 
The question they were trying to answer, how much information does it require to code and run the complex cells in a human body? In Cowan's own words, here's what they found out. The newly revealed DNA code was three billion letters long and written in strange and cryptographic four-letter code. Such is the amazing complexity of information carried within each cell of the human body that a live reading of the code at a rate of three letters per second would take over 31 years, even if the reading continued day and night. Printing these letters out in a regular-sized font on normal bond paper and binding them all together would result in a tower the height of the Washington Monument. You know what Bill Clinton said when he heard this? Bill Clinton said, We have discovered the language of God in which he coded human life. Bill Clinton said that. I'm just saying. Bill Clinton. No political statements there. <laughs> when I read this, this week, I read it over and over again. I thought, wow, God is amazing. The DNA that makes up my body is this complex. How in the world could it come to be without an intelligent designer behind it to make it happen? And then I started thinking about creation in general. At 5 o'clock this morning, I was roaming around my house. I don't know why. I looked out the window. There's this super moon looking at me in the face. Like, whoa. I went in a cave a couple summers ago in Colorado. I shined my light on a rock. And when I took my light away, it glowed in the dark. I was on top of a 14,000-foot peak in Colorado and realized that God could have pushed that up with his pinky if he wanted to. I'm mean, actually going on and on. God is amazingly creative, right? Zebras, giraffes. I mean, who would think of these things? You've been to that uh, exhibit at the Brookfield Zoo? Where they got those monkeys and they got the red butts and they kind of run around. That, I think that's fascinating. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm like, who would think this up? I mean, this is amazing God. He's got a sense of humor. I mean, it's, who would make that? It's crazy. Look what Psalm 19 says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into the whole earth, their words to the end of the world. If you want to know there's a God, just look at the creation. It's literally speaking about him all the time. The most profound moment for me in all this was when I had my first child, got in the ultrasound room, and there in the ultrasound machine was a baby. He's sitting down here right now. Baby the size of a piece of rice. And in the middle of that human being was a heart beating at 135 beats a minute. And I thought to myself, man, God is knitting together my child in his mother's womb fearfully and wonderfully. Whoa. Amazing. So, another spring on our trampoline, right? There's first the amazing people are out there that God has spoken to. Then there's this idea of creation and God who creates and it gets even better. Look at this. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Now, this is interesting because I think Paul here is talking about the uniqueness of this God that he serves. Every other God on the face of the earth, all those statues, you have to serve them. You have to perform for them. You have to do things for them so that they'll love you and pay attention to you. You have to like make sacrifices and do all kinds of good works and run around like a crazy person. But the God that we worship, the God that Paul worships, he just gives his love to you for free. He serves you. 
He gives you grace, right? Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. I love that. He sat down. You know why he sat down? Because the work was done. When Jesus died on the cross, you didn't have to do anything else. You want to get to know this God? You just have to open your hands and say, okay, Jesus, show me your Father. Because of the work he did, he can just sit down. And we get to see his Father. That's amazing. Freely. Don't do anything. Just fall before him. I love how it says there that he sustains everything by the power of his word. You know, even pastors have doubts. A few years ago when I was planting my church, I'd gone through a particularly rough season. Things hadn't gone so well in this church plant. After going really well at first, it didn't go so well at all. And I was in my kitchen one morning, sort of in the first time of my life, frankly, thinking to myself, you know, God is not really good. Because if he was good... He wouldn't have told me to go do this church plant and then watch the whole thing blow up. Of course, I didn't want to really look in the mirror, right, at my own part in making the whole thing blow up. Because it's better to blame God, you know what I'm saying? If you have a problem, you just ask, why God do this to me? You know, why, why, why take any responsibility for yourself? That's crazy. So I'm a gifted whiner. I'm a really gifted whiner, seriously. Ask my, ask my family. I'm an extremely gifted whiner. So I was in the kitchen just going, Lord, this is ridiculous. I can't believe this. You are terrible. I can't. How you, I'm just whining on and on. And all of a sudden, there's a knock on my door. I go into my door. It's my friend from Africa, John Vier, the guy who lived in a refugee camp for his whole life, who was an orphan at the age of 10, who has just come to the United States, can partly, hardly speak English. I, John Vier, what are you doing here? He goes, God sent me here. He told me to tell you, God like you, Daddy. God like you. Yeah. I'm like, whoa. God sent you here just now to my house? He goes, yeah. He, he knows, he wants you to know God like you. And he takes me in the kitchen. He says, get on your knees. I'm going to pray for you. And in Swahili, for 20 minutes, he prays. I, I, didn't, I don't speak in tongues. I don't have a clue what he said. But he prayed for me in Swahili for 20 minutes. And then he got up and said, God like you. Shook my hand and left. I was like, wow, God's amazing. He even knows that in the midst of this terrible situation, I need to know that he's good. So he sends me John Vier. Are you going through some difficult stuff? Then maybe you just need to trust in this God who sustains all things, who freely serves you when you need to be served. That's another spring on our frame of faith, right? Now Paul actually says, why did he do all this? While God did this so the people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. That's kind of the idea of groping around in the dark, trying to find this God. Even though he's not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of our own poets have said. I love how he quotes the poets, not the scripture. We are his offspring. Okay? Paul's basically saying, look, it's okay. God's right there. You just got to look for him. Just look for him. He's right there. So I go to camp all the time and I was at camp, uh, actually before I went to camp one year, I was reading this devotional at my mother-in-law's house. It was on her table. I don't know who the author was, but I picked it up. I started reading it. The first entry was, 
this lady, uh, she said that when she struggles to find God or know that he's there, she asks God to send her ladybugs. And she starts seeing ladybugs all over the place. So I'm like, well, that's an interesting idea. So I thought, well, ladybugs isn't manly enough for me. I need something manlier. So I said, God, I need to know you're around, so can you send me some monarch butterflies? It's pretty manly. So I get to camp the next week. I'm going to speak to junior high kids. I'm in my upper 40s, and I'm thinking, oh, man, these kids are going to think I'm like a grandpa, not like a cool speaker. So I'm talking to these three girls in the front row of the, of the chapel that first day, and all of a sudden they say, hey, look at your shoulder. I look over, monarch butterfly landed on me. During camp, as I'm speaking one night, some kids are going, they're pointing like this. I look up, there's a monarch butterfly flying over the top of me. So some of these kids, you know, they were like, oh man, this guy, he's not, he's lying. There's no way this works like this. So the one girl said, I'm going to test this out. So she went out in the woods. She stood in the woods and said, okay, God, if you're really there, I want to see a deer with antlers. And she stood there for five minutes. Nothing. She said, I knew this speaker was full of it. Right? This guy's telling us lies. And she spun around to go back to her cabin. And standing in her pathway, right behind her, was a massive elk with antlers staring her in the face. Pretty awesome. Now, some people think this is testing God. It's not testing God. You're just telling God, God, I know you're all around me. I just want to know you're here. Can you show me? So, I don't know, ask for something reasonable. Don't go tell me you asked for an elephant and it didn't show up. That's ridiculous, right? In the middle of Elmer's, it's not going to happen, right? I'm not saying God couldn't do it. I'm just saying, probably not going to happen. So, you know, look for something, you know, useful, reasonable. So now, we read this verse earlier in the service, and without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Faith, faith's a funny thing. You can believe something exists, but not really stake your life on it. You know what I'm saying? You know, you exercise faith every week. So do I. You go to a restaurant, and you sit down at the restaurant, you order your food, and a cook who you've never met prepares the food for you. You don't even know his name or her name. You don't know where their hands have been. I'm just saying, right? And they prepare the food, they bring it out, and you eat it. You don't even have no you know, sight unseen. You go, this is good. You trust you're going to walk out of there. Even, even worse, some of you get on a metal tube that goes at 37,000 feet at 600 miles per hour, and you let some guy that you've never met fly the plane. And you figure, no problem. You base your life on the fact that this is going to be okay. Well, I got an idea. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, I don't know if I can really trust this God, well, why not just try it? I mean, get on the trampoline of these reasonable reasons and see if you can actually find him. Right? My one friend, David, he used to have a little notebook he kept. It was his God sighting notebook. He would go on a God hunt every day. And he kept recording in his notebook his God sightings. That'd be a great assignment for you this week. If you're trying to figure out, where's this God? Get a little notebook. See if you can see him. According to Acts, he's all around you. You just have to give him a chance. And maybe he'll only attach a couple straps, but at least you'll have a faith you can start to work on, right? Which, as Pastor Greg said earlier, it might take a while. It's okay. And if you have some doubts and some questions, that's okay too. All right. I just want you to know, I believe there's a God. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, um, 
we thank you for being here with us this morning. We pray, Lord, for anyone who might be wondering if you're really real, that you would show yourself to him or her sometime today. Lord God, I pray that we could, as your people, live such compelling lives that our lives would convince the world that you exist and that you are amazing. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.